Hello everybody, my name is Alex Marks and this is Young History, episode 31 on Malta. This is actually an archipelago, not just an island. There's actually three major islands that make it up. Those are Malta, Gozo, and Comino. Here they have the lower ta- lowest taxes out of anywhere in the EU, and on top of that they also have the smallest capital in all the EU. It, has about, it is about 0.68 square kilometers, the entire capital of Valletta, which is Malta's capital. And there's many other unique things about this country. This history is so interesting to me, and I mean that so sincerely. I didn't know anything about Malta until probably 10 months ago, or about a year ago, around this time. And I just have to say it's so... So unique. I didn't know the country existed because this this history thing is, is new-ish to me. It was around February, January of last year that I really started to fall in love with it. And I started to just throw myself at it. And I spent time going day by day, country by country, finding what information I could. And now I've gotten to the point where I want to put it in a podcast and I want to put it into something that other people can consume and that I could come back to in the future and know that I did something with it. And Malta was one as soon as I found out about it and watched videos from especially Overly Sarcastic Podcasts, OSP. They were incredibly entertaining with it, and then I've watched things by a kid named State of the Nations. Uh, it's a kid named Max that runs it. And then recently, Mr. History, who's another lesser-known channel, that put out a video on it, and all of them just grabbed me and made me want to learn more and more about the country. And so I have. And that's why I'm here today, to bring you guys as much information as I can about the history of Malta, talk about their language, their culture, and anything I can really get out because this country is a very unique one. It's very fun, and it's quite the anomaly, especially for the EU. So we're going to get right into it. So thank you guys for being here, and my name is Alex Marks. This is Young History, and this is Malta. Our origins begin around 5,900 years ago. In the Neolithic period, the first people here prior to the Stone Age, prior to the Iron Age, I mean, actually built many structures that still remain around the area today. And because of this, there was a lot of predictions made around it by the people at the time and since then. Now, when it comes to people at the time, they actually had the belief that once they were one or two generations away from the people that actually built these structures, that it was a goddess that and either enabled the people who built them to build it or built it herself because they believed this was a giant goddess that was very powerful and embodied strength that they believed was inside of each and every one of their citizens and with this they built these stone structures that are constructed far before the pyramids of Giza even are and they are called Gigantia which connects to the giant the, the mythic belief that it was giants and the fact that they're so huge compared to many other structures of the history of the world at the time. And that's where a lot of the name comes from. It's very it's very interesting because they still stand today and not it doesn't get anywhere near as much coverage as the pyramids do. Of course, the pyramids are a more impressive structure, but the ones all over Malta that make up Gigantia are quite special as well. And the people who built these structures were the original people of Malta. And they were unique because they came to Malta with their already an already established farming culture, which leaves a lot of people to believe that they were migrants from Sicily, which was already an established civilization at the time. And that they, during this Neolithic Stone Age era, started to bring these farming habits in because it was already so it was already so clear to historians and archaeologists that there was something already in place 
system-wise when the Maltese, original Maltese people started to create what we call Malta. And another thing that was interesting about the land is that there were dwarf elephants and dwarf hippos running around Malta during the Stone Age, but they were hunted until extinction because they're no longer present there. And the only thing that can be found is buried remains of animals that were already fully consumed and the bones were discarded. And you can, just like we do with dinosaurs, researchers can put together all the parts of it to make out a full skeletal system. And a big thing that can identify the different parts of the pre-Iron Age and Bronze Age era would be the ceramics. Different ceramic styles actually presented throughout the pre-Common Era, and they even go farther into the eras beyond the Iron and Bronze Age because they still even were present when the Romans were around and the Punics. And speaking of the Punics, these were the first major... This was the first major civilization to really take root here. This would be in around 800 BC. The Phoenicians would take over all the land and call it Maleth. It was a great resting place for when they were traveling from the eastern part of the Phoenician Empire to Carthage or from Carthage to the eastern part of the empire because that eastern part is where Israel and all of them are today. And that is quite the journey, especially at the time when ships were not the way they are today. It was all sails and people manning the ship, rowing it. So the trip was very long, it was very struggle-filled, and having this little stop at Malta made it easy to take a rest, refuel on supplies, and get moving again. Now the next people to come here, and this is going to be a list that goes on and on and on. Lots of influence from a lot of different countries make up what Malta is. And the next people who come are the Persians, who come around 539 BC, when they take over leadership of Malakath, or Maleth, and it's not long after that, that... Rome takes over in around 200 BC after Persia was starting to was peaking was peaking time-wise as it grabbed Malta, but it didn't take long for them to start towards their decline, which left them susceptible to Rome, where Rome would intervene in battles between the Phoenicians, which were the which was Carthage, and the Persians to get their grab of land, which would be Malta, which they take in 200 BC and they call it Malite. And Rome didn't do much with the archipelago, nor did they record much of its history. And that just means the time that was happening there with the Romans as the leaders really just went by century by century, year by year. And the only two major things that happened in this time are that Roman culture definitely took root when it came to architecture within the country, within the archipelago, I should say. And in between the time of the Romans and the next rulers is when Christianity would be introduced because Malta is one of the first countries in the world to be exposed to Christianity. And this is believed to have happened when St. Paul the Apostle was shipwrecked on his way from the Holy Land into Rome to be tried. And the people of Malta took good care of him and while taking care of him, listened to his teachings, which eventually made Christianity take early root in Malta before almost anywhere else in the world. And the next people that would come into the land would actually be the Vandals. After Western Rome fell in around 476 AD, the Germanic Vandals took the archipelago around 500 AD and gave it to the Ostrogoths as tribute because these different Germanic tribes were all kind of under one leadership at the time, which was the Ostrogoths in this region. So anything the Vandals took, they thought it would be a good idea to give it to the Ostrogoths to maintain favor and keep things rolling in that way. And this wouldn't last long at all. It would only be about 50 years later when 
the Eastern Roman Empire would start to bring their fist down as Byzantium, and they would invade and take over Malta in 535 AD. And this would be under the general Belisarius, who, when sailing back and forth between establishing correspondence with Rome and starting to work towards taking over Rome for Byzantium, he started to realize the value of Malta and saw that the way it was being used by the Ostrogoths was beneficial to them, so they wanted he preferred that it would be used by the Byzantines, and it would be beneficial to them instead. The next people to take over would actually be a very unique one compared to the ones so far. That would be the Aglabid dynasty. They were an Arabic dynasty that took over in 870, and they ended up sacking the land and depopulating it. They killed almost anyone they could on Malta, as well as deporting them, enslaving them, or forcing them to flee. So from 1870 into the next 200 years or so, even though it is under the rulership of the Aglabid dynasty, the archipelago of Malta is pretty much completely abandoned and depopulated for a long time. This would change under the Fatimid Caliphate, which came around te- which came around 1050. Arabic settlers began to move into the land to repopulate it, and they ended up going to the highest city in the country, which was Milet, which was Meltia, and they ended up naming it Medina, which is very similar to the name it holds today, which is Medina. Very, very similar, just kind of dropping a syllable or a vowel. And once the Byzantines saw this, they realized that they didn't want the Muslims to have any holding, so they attempted to get the land back, but the Fatimid Caliphate vowed to all their slaves that if they were to fight against the Byzantines and they would win, they would be granted freedom. And because of this backing from the slaves, this is the reason that many historians believe the Byzantines were actually defeated by the Fatimid Caliphate despite them outnumbering them. The fight and effort from the slaves and the numbers they brought as like a counterbalance, was very influential in the way this war would go. And one of the main effects of this is that there would be a big influence of an Arabic dialect on the language. This would be considered Sekulo Arabic, which is where the modern Maltese language derived from. And the reason this is such a unique language is because it is the only Semitic language written in Latin letters and is also the only one recognized by a lot of European countries as being in the EU today. So it has a lot of unique, the way letters are written, there's like a written, there's like a double H that has two hexes in the middle, and just different things are pronounced weird, there's some letters that aren't present, so it's insane to learn, it's insane to write, but it's a very, very unique language because it of course had the Latin influence from the Romans, but then it had spent so much time under Arabic control that there would be a lot of change that comes to it, and it would come again when the next rulers come and that would be from the king of and that would be from the Normans which would see the Norman king of Italy Roger the 1st invade in the late 11th century AD and he would return Christianity to the land because it was already previously taking root with Paul the apostle and of course the caliphates and dynasties brought Islam in so he would return it then and this and this time, under the Norman kings, it actually created a lot of ties between Sicilian Italy and Malta, which makes the Arabic language go through a new makeover where it starts to go through a lot of Italian. And even though it is a Semitic language and base, it would now be start to be written in Latin, which is, you know, the basis of Latin, of Italian. And because of the fact that this country was so close with Sicily, both geographically and because of the ties between the Norman king and Malta, it became very rich in this time. This wouldn't last long as the Holy Roman Empire would actually take it over in 1194 because it was encapsulated into it under Frederick II and became home to many, many Italian immigrants who were also within the empire because of the Catholic Church. And then France would make a quick 
grab at Malta when in 1266, Charles I of Anjou would take over all of Malta, but this wouldn't last long either because only about 17 years later, Spain would take control with the help of Argon, which was kind of which is what is like considered today the Catalonian region that's trying to break away from Spain. These two worked together to take over Malta, and this started a long time where Spain would rule and a lot of Spanish architecture would start to go up, Spanish tile roofs, and the Spanish king being hailed as the head of state. This would go on until 1429 when the Tunisians would actually invade. The Maltese working with the Spaniards were actually able to hold off this force and they remain under Spanish rule, which would change under Charles V because Charles V started to consult the Pope the Pope on what to do with Malta and the Pope suggested that he gives it to the Knights. He wanted it to be the specific Knights, the Knights Hospitaller of St. John. And at the time, Charles V was the most powerful man in the world because not only was he the King of Spain, but he was also the Holy Roman Emperor, which made him have control of all the Spanish holdings in the New World, as well as all of the Iberian Peninsula, most of France because of the way things were working between Spain and France at the time, and all of the Holy Roman Empire, which controls from Central Italy all the way up to the Baltic Sea. So he was by far the most powerful man alive, and he used this power to give a gift to the Knights of St. John because they had just been kicked out of their pretty much home island of Rhodes, which is right next to modern-day Turkey, where the Ottoman Empire was. And the reason these knights were in Rhodes originally was because they were created to help provide safe pilgrimage from mostly Italy and other parts of Europe into the Holy Land of Jerusalem because of the fact that the Reconquista had just happened in the last hundred years. But as the Ottoman Empire started to take over again, this would be changed and Rhodes would be attacked, especially under Suleiman the Magnificent, who would send them away after taking over Rhodes, and this is when they would move to Malta. And once they came here, they actually start to change things because they moved the capital to Burgu, which is not in this higher-up mountainy region where the old capital was. It is now more in the eastern part of the island of Malta, where docks could be easily built and things could be easily built up. And the next thing that happens is a huge, huge invasion, which is one of the most significant moments in the history of Malta, and arguably for all of Europe, because when the Knights of Rhodes were actually moved into Malta, they actually started to reestablish what they were doing from Rhodes, which was attacking Ottoman ships, preventing Ottoman trade, and taking any, any hostages they could from the Ottomans, as well as rescuing any hostages of Christian descent that the... Ottomans had, and they would begin to do this out of Malta, which would make Suleiman the Magnificent go, are you kidding me? So he decides we're done, and he takes the most massive force that, that, that his country had garnered in thousands of years and throws it at Malta. This was a force of between forty and 50,000 Ottoman troops that came on hundreds of ships, and because of this, a lot of narrative would start to build around this because there was only 5,000 soldiers on the side of Malta, which was a very, very Christian country at the time as it is today. And the most, the rest of Europe saw this as if they were to lose Malta, it would be used as a stepping stone to get to Sicily, then to Rome, and then to the rest of Europe. And they feared it would be a domino effect. So... Europe would actually have to double down and go fight for Malta to help them survive this and help keep Christendom alive. But as Malta is south of Italy and it's away from 
at least a few weeks of sailing away from many parts of the rest of Europe, it would take time for them to serve. They would, there would be a time where the Maltese would actually have to stand up and fight for themselves and survive this giant onslaught from the Ottomans if they wanted to get those eventual reinforcements to come. Because if they didn't, they would be crushed. And in the eyes of Europe, and what many historians believe is accurate, is that the rest of Christendom likely would have fell to the Ottomans. In the time before this invasion, though, it was not a sneak attack. It was very obvious that what the Knights of Rhodes were doing would eventually get them in trouble and get them the attention of the Ottoman Empire. And because of this, they were spending a lot of time preparing beforehand. And they start to put up many fortifications in the years between Spain gifting them the island. And when the attack happened, there would be many great walls built up. Many people would be trained to fight. And when the time came, they started to batten down the hatches and get ready for the invasion. And one of the main reasons they were able to persevere was under a man named Jean Peresat de Valette. And because of his leadership, they were actually able to hold off the Turkish invasion for three months before troops started to arrive from all over Europe, especially from Italy, Spain, and other parts of the respective um, empires under Spain and Italy. And after this huge amount of resistance and resilience under the leadership of Valette, the Maltese show that they have this backbone, they have this grit to survive, and once there is finally the appearance of the Spaniards and all these other European powers to come help the fight, they actually force the Ottomans to retreat, and this wasn't without huge losses. The Maltese did lose many, but the bigger losses were definitely on the side of the Ottomans, where around 50% of their entire fleet would be killed or die, would be killed or destroyed. So this was a huge defeat to be had by the Ottomans, and it is celebrated across Europe, and Malta is celebrated for this. And they're called Malta the Savior for a time because they were seen as the place where Christianity and the Christian world was saved because if this country had fallen, as I said, they believed it would have been a domino effect of Italy falling, then the rest of Europe falling, because the Ottomans were very strong at the time. If they could have garnered a force as large as 50,000, it's very clear they were strong. So Europe would actually start to throw a bunch of gifts at them. They would give them many gifts and huge amounts of money and different tributes to Malta for being the survivor, the savior, being this very resilient force that kept Christianity, al Christianity alive. And with this, this saw a lot of growth in Malta and the capital city, which is Valletta. And with the gifts that would come from this, all the tribute, all the money, they would actually build up Valletta City, which was named for... Jean Parasat de Valette, who was the main leader during the 1565 siege, which is when that Ottoman siege happened. I neglected to mention the date. And it was built by the order of him himself, obviously in his name. And it stands today as the capital, which is still named after him. And of course, with this money, Malta grew in other ways. The boatloads of money that were given to Malta actually saw a lot of change come to the country. It was very much beautified, and a lot of the country was built out of the limestone that was naturally within the country and in nearby Sicily, and it was used to build up all sorts of areas in the country. There were many churches and cathedrals built throughout many of the next two centuries because over this time there was a lot of peace within Malta from 1566 until around just before the year 1800 there was a whole lot of nothing happening in Malta except for growth because they weren't being invaded by anyone because of this big thing that happened with the Ottomans the Ottomans kind of got this weird fear 
of Malta, despite it being so small and them being so large, both in military and in geographical size. They just had this fear of Malta because of how they were able to resist their force in only a few months and enlist a defeat where they had to retreat upon the the Ottomans. So they didn't ever come back. And then because of Malta being this savior of Christendom, they don't have a problem with anywhere in Europe. So for a long time, they're just simply not attacked. They don't fight any wars. And they all they have to do is grow within themselves and figure their own things out. And with that, they build up the country physically to a very beautiful place and start to figure out their politics. And one of those things would actually be that the knights would start to decline because a lot of the knights' power came from the fact that they were attacking and raiding Ottoman areas and they had support and power from that. But as peace would start to come, the country moved through a time where they would decrease in power. And another thing they stood for very greatly was anti-Islam. But the thing was, as we got to the six, the 17 and 1800s, peace between Islamic and European countries would start to come more and more and trade between them would come. So the idea that there's a group set with their basis in the Crusades and the Reconquista, there wasn't much of a need for them anymore, especially when one of their head knights, the leaders of the country, declared Malta neutral, which meant that the knights were more just figureheads than anything else. And this declining power became very clear when Napoleon Bonaparte actually made himself very known in France and in Malta. So I won't tell the story of Napoleon, but he is a, by the time of 1799, was a French, was a previous French soldier who was born in Corsica, little island off of west of Italy. And he rose to power, stages a coup d'etat, and now has the full French military, calls himself the revolution, and begins to start the Napoleonic Wars where he takes over most of Europe. And one of the things he does is conquer a lot of Italy, and he marches down into Malta and takes it over. And there isn't much resistance here because many of the knights respected Napoleon, respected Napoleon because of the fact that a lot of them were of French descent and had a lot of investments in France between their order with Spain and France that made up the basis of the knights. So there was almost no resistance at all when Napoleon came except for a few groups that stood up against him. But he made a mistake when he ordered the French to take from the treasures and churches of Malta, which prompted them to reach out to Britain and start their own protest. So the Maltese rise up against them because they had so much disdain for this French rule that came and started as very glorious with Napoleon and as things started to get more greedy the French started to take taxes from them and steal from their treasury and their churches that's when they reach out to Britain only about two years later when Britain would come to the country and yes I know this is another country getting to control Malta I get it so this is around the year 1800 the British attack the country and they defeat French the British attack the country and they defeat the French and take full control of the island for themselves. And they were meant to sign it away back to the Knights, but they just didn't ever do this because they realized how great of an area it was. Because within the next few years, the Suez Canal would actually open up, which means that having a prime spot in the Mediterranean was so good for wealth and trade that they just never gave it back up to the Knights and they just held it for the next 150 years, roughly. And it became a major shipping port, which of course led to many economic booms within the land. 
And, of course, Malta prospered very greatly from this trade that was coming in and out of the country under the British. And the next thing that Malta would be involved in internationally would be the Crimean War, where Malta housed more people than it ever had before, which made it have an economic growth from the fact that so many soldiers and people were being housed here to be taken care of while Britain and other forces were fighting in this war. And many, many people were being taken care of who suffered from the war, soldiers, and because of this, there was more foot traffic and stimulation being brought to the economy of Malta, which helped it grow even richer. Soon after this, Malta started to modernize its ports so that it could better accommodate new steamships, and this created a lot of new jobs on the docks that would start to open up on the coasts of both islands that make up the country of Malta. And it brought in a lot of people, as well as more soldiers, that also brought another economic boom. So from this Crimean War and und time under the British, Malta got very, very rich and became much better than it was economically beforehand. In World War I, they would actually really model the same thing they did throughout the Crimean War, as well as when the Knights Hospitaller was at its peak, and they actually housed over 50,000 soldiers and helped heal them back to life or help them survive brutal wounds. From the First World War, allies of Britain, so Britain, France, Russia and the United States, if any were fighting in the Mediterranean, they would come to Malta more likely than anywhere else to be taken care of if they were injured. And because of this, they get the name the Nurse of the Mediterranean or the Hospital of the Mediterranean. Once First World War ends, there's much more of a desire for independence and own self-rule because by this point, Malta was a crown colony under Britain, and that meant that they pretty much had the British, the British send a governor to rule over them, which is not what Malta wanted. They would much rather rule over themselves. So they fight for this after World War One, and only two years after, in 1921, they're actually granted self-government. And in between the First World War and Second World War is when political parties start to form and there starts to be a movement towards eventual independence, but that's com- that comes to a halt because there was a clash between people who had Maltese nationalism and people who had Italian nationalism because, as I said, Since Rome, Italy has had a huge, Rome, the Normans, and more, there was a huge influence of Italy on Malta, and there was a nice little group of Italian nationalist parties, but when the Second World War broke out, this would all go away because of how quickly Italy would attack Malta, and as soon as Italy declared war on Malta, it would only take one day for them to start bombarding Malta and Malta of course is exponentially smaller than Italy. Literally if you look at a map of Europe like you can't even see Malta unless you zoom in. It's that small underneath Italy and they would face a blockade for two full years where no supplies was coming into them. The allies Britain and them had to do a very Berlin airlift-esque thing to get supplies into the Maltese but despite these air bombings and being starved out and being blockaded out from the rest of the world. The Maltese showed great courage once again and showed that they were strong as they survived this for two years. There was very few casualties outside the ones that just got caught in buildings that were falling down. And there was no surrender from Malta. There was no giving in. They just continued to help any British that they could. Any British that made it onto Malta that were hurt would be taken care of. And Malta would end up actually being a huge part of the effort against fascist Italy and Benito Mussolini because Operation Pedestal went into effect where Britain used one of its largest aircraft carriers in collaboration with the United States. 
to help get Malta liberated in Operation Pedestal. And remember earlier how when in the invasion of 1565, Europe feared that if Malta fell, it would lead to Sicily falling, then Rome falling, and then all of Europe falling. This would actually happen in truth in World War II because Malta is liberated after Operation Pedestal, and from there they use it as a refueling and refueling, reviving, and launching point for the rest of their attack on Southern Europe, where after Winston Churchill referred to Italy as the soft underbelly of Europe, Benito would be more focused on dealing with the sick burn he just had to deal with than actually defending the country, and he was fighting more on the Eastern Front. So they would use this as a, use Malta as a stepping point to get into Sicily, which they took over quickly, and then marched all the way through Rome, executed Mussolini, and moved on to win the rest of the war. So if it weren't for Malta, the effort of the Allies in Southern Europe likely wouldn't have been anywhere near as easy because of the role Malta played. And because of this, once the war is over, King George VI actually awards the George Cross to Malta for their bravery and courage throughout the whole war. And it is still on their flag to this day in the top left corner. And Malta would actually come and Malta would actually become fully independent in 1964 as a monarchy and as times went on and more of a push came towards breaking away from old values, they actually become a republic in 1974, but they remained as a member of the Commonwealth of Britain, and because of this, for the next few years, British troops would still remain on Malta just to kind of, in their claim, quell any rebellions that were happening and make sure that there was no unrest in the country, but in truth, it was more for the British to have a force there to allow them to still use Malta for its great positioning and strategic area when it came to trade. In 1979, Britain and Malta had an agreement go into effect, which the British previously agreed to when Malta joined the Commonwealth in 1974, which included that all British troops would leave. And once this happened, it would mark the first time since the invasions of the Normans in the 11th century that Malta was no longer occupied by a foreign power. So this becomes a huge holiday, one of the 14 holidays celebrated every year in Malta, which is more than any other country in the European Union. It is celebrated every single day as Freedom Day in March 31st because it celebrates that it is the first time they had been truly free since around the 11th century when the Normans took over. And in 2004, they joined the EU. By 2008, they actually accepted the euro, euro as their new currency. And despite this, they're actually still a tax haven of sorts. They have no property tax in the country and businesses that have that bring in a lot of money and a lot of revenue, have to pay less taxes in Malta than anywhere else in the European Union. Not in Europe, because Switzerland is still still sneaky with their little Swiss banks. And this actually came full circle when in 2018, the Pilatus Bank actually saw a scandal where they had to have their license revoked by the European Central Bank because their president was actually embezzling funds and laundering money through the United States from its Maltese banks and its low taxes. So he's been arrested, and the bank has still not been returned to a place where they're seen as legitimate because of all the issues that it presented and how big this scandal was. And with that, that gets it to the present day, where Malta is rated as, v- rated 
And that gets us to the present day where Malta is rated as very high on the human development index and they have one of the highest life expectancies in the world that consistently rank in the top 10 and they have a very strong economy. And believe it or not, the St. John Knights that were big in Malta in the 13 to 1500s, they actually still exist in Malta today, but they are known as the Sovereign Military Order of Malta. Despite that name, they actually don't do any military fighting. They more fight against sickness and harm caused to people because they raise money for hospitals and donate to health organizations around the world. And Malta is just gorgeous. It's beautiful country. It's still made out of that limestone. There's cathedrals on every corner. And despite it having such a Catholic identity, it is very open there's full freedom of religion within the country gay rights are fully tolerated and enacted within the country so it's kind of like all the good of being very religious in one way without having all the bads and not to say this is a utopia or anything but malta has a lot of great things going for it as it did throughout most of its history and as it does today and with that that gets us to pretty much today where we wrap up the history of malta and I get to say what I love to say, which is I'm going to leave this the way I always like to leave it, which is with a lesson or a mindset to kind of take away from Malta and its history. And with Malta, I have to say the takeaway for me is have courage and do not give up. Malta is the embodiment of college of courage. They have a cross on their country flag for it. They have been given many names as the savior, the nurse, the hospital for their courage. They're a country that is no bigger than some of the major cities in Italy, yet they have still survived the rule of Ottomans and Romans and many, many other countries throughout their history. As you heard, I named like 14 different people that have ruled them. And they have survived invasions that outnumbered them 10 to 1. They have survived world wars. They've survived air bombardment. They have survived everything you can imagine. And they are still, at this point of time, one of the most prosperous countries in Europe, which is one of the most prosperous, prosperous areas in the world. Probably the most prosperous continent is Europe. And despite anything they've been through, they have that status and they have that going for them and that can be talked about on and on about all the beautiful architecture and art history and people and lifestyle that can be had in Malta despite the brutal history they have had under so many rulers under so many different powers different times it's it's very unique that Malta is to be where it is today after having the history it has and that can be used with you no matter what your history is no matter what traumas or struggles or pain you've been through no matter what you're going through right now, you need to have courage to brace yourself for what's to come, brace yourself through what you're going through, and be able to look back on what you've been through and accept it and say, okay, okay, I can do this, because you can. I'm not going to say anything like, oh, time heals all. No, because the only thing, to, the only way things truly and really heal is if you put the work in, is if you accept them, is if you feel the emotions you have to feel, and then push your way through it. That is the truth, and because of all those things, because of that, truly, you can do this. You can get through it, you can push forward, and as long as you continue to wake up, you push for your goals, you push for your dreams, you push through whatever your struggle is, be that math class, be that a terrible relationship, be that true horrible traumas that you may be going through, whatever they are, they can only stop you if you let them stop you, and that is not to take anything away from anyone who's a victim, 
but use that as your strength. Use it as a weapon in your arsenal. Use it to keep you pushing forward. And when you get out on the other side, you're going to be so much more happy and proud of who you are because you earned it rather than just accepting what was thrown at you because life is going to throw a lot of terrible things at you. That's a guarantee. Be it on a terrible scale of crimes that could happen to you or be it on a more tame scale of terrible relationships and struggles with friends, whatever it is for you, if you push through that, you're going to be so much more proud of the person that comes out on the other side that looks you in the mirror once it's all said and done because that is a kind of person who persevered and got through the hardest times of their life and continued to struggle through this thing we call life to get to a point where they were truly great because nothing that is truly great in this world came easy. People sell NFTs and make millions. They're going to blow that money more than likely. And the people who work hard and build up who they are and build businesses and build themselves to be strong, consistent individuals, those are the people that show up every day. Those are the people that create generational wealth. Those are the people that get through traumas. And those are the people that you should look up to. And those are the people that I want to be. So truly look at the way Malta has gotten through so many things in and out of different centuries and millennia throughout history. And apply that to yourself because if one set of human beings can get through something that may be worse and more dangerous than something you're going through, then you can get through whatever you're going through, even if it's worse or better. Because if one person has done it, so could you because there is no difference between someone's strength and yours. You just have to show it. You just have to continue to build it because you can get through it. And if you do, you're doing what you should. That is the episode. That is Malta. That is all I have. So with that, I'm going to say thank you so much for being here. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for hopefully getting something out of this, be it entertainment or be it a great lesson. And whatever it is for you, I hope you enjoyed. So my name is Alex Marks. This is Young History. And that was Malta. I hope you all have a lovely night. Goodbye.